You're now listening to Sound Talent Media. Check out more shows at SoundTalentMedia.com. This is the Jabberjaw Podcast Network. Visit JabberjawMedia.com for more shows like this one. Interning 101 podcast, hosted by yours truly, Emily White, author of Interning 101. Hello, and welcome to episode three of the Interning 101 podcast. I'm your host, Emily White. Today, I am so excited to have my dear friend and one of my favorite musicians of all time, Brian Viglione. Welcome, Brian. Thank you, Em. It's great to be with you once again. Yeah, my pleasure. So I've already started to kind of reference my background in the industry and and being an intern. And uh, so much of my early career was with you know, your band, the Dresden Dolls. So I wanted to have you on today and delve into kind of my story a little bit and also talk about how, you know, being an intern trying to break into any competitive field is almost exactly like being a musician. Absolutely. It requires a lot of resourcefulness and uh, improvisational skills. (laughs) Absolutely. I'm a kid from Heartland, Wisconsin, a village where we have no music industry. (laughs) My parents' friends owned Heartland Music, so that was my one connect to the music industry. So I knew no one in the industry when I started, and since then, my name's been on the cover of Billboard. I've traveled the world with you guys and gone on to do all these things. So how did that happen? Um, I'm still even known sometimes as the Dresden Dolls intern. Like, people are, I mean, they know I did other things, you know, with your band, but um, that's almost kind of, like, infamous within kind of, I don't know, weird indie music industry lore. So I want to talk about how that happened and how that evolved a little bit. Now, I had done a few internships. I had interned at Powderfinger Promotions, which I actually think did some early radio promo for you guys on your first album. I interned at Q Division that summer. I interned at um, WBCN, RIP, no longer with us. Uh, Went to New York the next summer, interned at VH1 Classic. And actually, when I was in New York that summer, um, the guy I was dating at the time, Josh Frankfurt, said to me, Emily White, you have to see the Dresden Dolls. You, I know your music taste, you will love this band. And you guys were playing at the old knitting factory in Manhattan. And Josh and I were supposed to go. And he, I would say this all in front of him, obviously, he's kind of a spaz. And he was like, we're on the subway and I'm I'm 19 and, and we got separated. And I didn't know where to go. And I thought, you know, I don't even have $10 to see this band. Like, so he just went. So we like got in a fight on the subway. And then he came back. I mean, we were like pissed off at each other in the subway. When he came back, he was so like naturally high from the show. Like everything was fine. I mean, Uh, we broke up shortly after. We're still friends. He's a school teacher, has great taste in music. So I think that was really, I probably heard about your band because I went to school in Boston. But that was the first time someone was like, Emily White, you will love you know, this music and this band. So um, my boss at Powderfinger, Winifred Chain, uh, also was an editor for Scope Magazine. And she said, if you write about the Boston Music Awards, you get tickets, of course. And that's the first time I ever saw you guys perform. Do you remember that performance at the Wang? Yes, I do remember that. Phenomenal. Was that the year of the bear suit? 
or, or a different, um, oh no, the Wang Center, right. That was the a beautiful were, Wang. Yes. We, yeah. we were once asked to be presenters at the BMAs and uh, I donned a full bear costume. Amazing. But this was not the uh, performance. Yes. I, I vaguely do remember performing at the Wang. Yeah. The Boston Music Awards were a big deal for any local band. So I was just totally blown away. It was a beautiful, I mean, I think you only did a song or two, but it was just right. a beautiful performance in this theater, you yeah. know, performing arts center. And so immediately fell in love with your band. Um, I don't even know if your album was quite out yet. I probably went to the record release at the Paradise. Oh, wow. And that's where I got it. And and again, was just so blown away. So then you guys played at Northeastern, my university. I don't know. Um, fun fact for bands, uh, Northeastern University in Boston has a little uh, non-alcoholic club called After Hours, and supposedly it pays bands pretty well. So FYI for the musicians out there. And so you got, and so because of that, we would get good talent, you know, because you guys were doing well in Boston. Yep. So you guys played. I even remember um, uh, Molly's band opening. Oh, right. Uh, Jaggery. Also so good. Yeah. So uh, you guys were, I think it was just like Amanda by the merch table afterwards. Mm -hmm. And this was 2003. And I wanted to buy CDs. It was the fall. Must have been getting closer to Christmas. uh, For my friends in Wisconsin, who I thought would really like the band. And I was very nervous to say this. Uh, I, I introduced myself to Amanda. I would have introduced myself to you, but I think you were dealing with the gear, of mm-hmm. course. And I said, I, I presented myself in a very professional manner. I, I mean, I was a fan, but I said, you know, I'm studying music business. I write for a local magazine. I intern at WBCN. Let me know if you ever need help with anything. And Amanda said, can you come over tomorrow? Yeah, that's how you do it. Yes. And it turned out the Cloud Club, this amazing basically artist commune that she lived in was a 10 minute walk from campus. Amazing. So super easy. I would do my classes. I was on the swim team, go to practice and I would go over to Amanda's house and, you know, people need to understand that, you know, she lived there and this was a part of your band, but you guys had, you know, Michael Pope, your video director living there, Tom and Steve Martin, who did your website in 2003 bands did not have websites, let alone like in-house people and video directors. So this was all just like incredibly, forward thinking. Um, do you have any comments kind of on that 2003 time period? Absolutely. That was the confluence of a lot of um, artists and creative people um, being connected by an absolute maven type of person um, in that area. And it was an infrastructure that existed at the Cloud Club stemming from Lee Barron, whose purpose in operating this um, series of apartment buildings was to get active young artists in there and build this community. Add to the pot a personality like Amanda Palmer, who loves to connect people, has many ideas um, of her own and wants to make things happen. You then begin that process of selecting people to be part of that inner circle of that community to fill those various roles, whether it's uh, graphic design and web design people or people who are just, you know, people like uh, Liza, um, who was living there at the time, who was a painter, but contributed in many ways to our, the visual side of the band, as well as Zaya Barker, who designed the inner sleeve of the Dresden Dolls' first album, uh, the painting <clears throat> that's on the booklet. Um, down the line through just like friends and fans uh, who helped us, you know, for example, like 
build our first merch road case and things like that. It's really... Can you define a merch road case? Because that's something I still teach bands about. Yes. A merch road case is the case in which your t-shirts and your wares uh, transport back and from the gig. uh, And your email list. Just throw it in there. Just have it ready to go. Exactly. And we had our friend Andrew Anselmo at the time uh, design sort of like a wooden chest, which would stand upright and then open outward um, like a sort of like a big, tall jewelry display case which had the t-shirts and cds and all the different things that we were selling at the time and um had a real particular look to it with christmas lights and things like that so yeah give it give it your own personal stamp too it's your lifeblood at the show i'm laughing because i i'm having this memory that um i'm quite sure mark cates would be okay with me saying you guys are opening for mission of burma mm-hmm. at avalon and i set up the the open door merch wood merch case you're talking about and we got in trouble for it blocking mission of burma's merch right so just be mindful of your headliner but uh <laughs> in general true. That was that was a really useful tool. That's true. The the sort of like the metal cage uh, shelving units uh, make a nice upright stand and very slim and discreet design. And you know what else was huge? I learned in those early days that not enough bands do. If you travel with a clip light, mm-hmm. it just can illuminate the entire merch area in a dark club and make a huge difference. And you could just pick it up at any hardware store on the road or whatever. Right. So. 100%. Yeah. Making sure you got the proper illumination where you go. Um, but to continue on the uh, the track on like when that community was developing around the Cloud Club and around Dresden Dolls, um, it helped to, for one, before even the Dresden Dolls were in existence, Amanda was holding monthly parties um, at her apartment in which the entire apartment building would get involved. And anywhere between, you know, 50 to 150 people would show up. Um, a sort of multidisciplinary, extraordinaire soiree, uh, people reading poetry and bringing sculptures and installations, wearing various costumes. And, um, you know, I think very much done in that kind of 1920s sort of art uh salon style um and uh, you know a tight group of artist friends was developed and when the dresden dolls began performing at these house shows that was our first exposure to what would become later the fans who would come and see us in clubs uh and that translated to the first time we played the middle east club in cambridge 140 people came to see us on like a monday or tuesday Amazing. night and the club was like who the hell are you yeah. and where did you guys bring all these people from well it had been germinating in a very grassroots scene and so we perpetuated that entire um method i guess of spreading the word about the band up and through the um, major label era as well, too. You know, we would incorporate fans in what we called the Brigade, uh, which was getting our fans involved, which very much stemmed out of our love for things like the Rocky Horror Picture Show, where uh, fan engagement in dressing up, bringing things and involving themselves as a community outside of even the shows um, was a chance for people to feel that they had a real personal touch on the concert event itself. And so that was something, and I guess you might make a loose association and say maybe something like uh, jam band fans would do that with the kind of tailgate parties or sports fans get painted up and make their food and hang out in the parking lots and, you know, whatever kind of, you know, chanting and rituals you got going on pregame. Um, our fans would pregame with their face paint and, and, uh, and different sorts of things that would get together. But that then translated not only across the Northeast United States, but to Europe, Australia, uh, Asia, and so on. And even down to areas where the band never even toured, like in Brazil, where we would get Dresden Dolls fan-made videos of kids who got entire video crews together and did their Dresden Dolls videos on sort of unofficial releases that would wind up getting tremendous views and stuff. Um, so that was a way of really kickstarting an entire movement 
from extending the invitation to the fans to be involved. So some really interesting things in there. First, you know, you talk about this uh, artist community around you and, you know, it's just a reminder to musicians to, I I don't mean this in a bad way, but take advantage of the resources that are around you. You know, you can wish for all these magical industry people to come in, but you know, it, you're, you're an artist, you know, maybe you have a friend who is good at graphic design or that can pop up a website or things like that. So definitely, you know, pay attention to your friends and return the favor, you know, however possible. And, you know, when you were throwing those salons and parties, that was genuine, you know, that was who you were. You weren't trying to be something else. And then you also talked about connecting with your audience. That was, that always has been, uh, and, and is very pure for you guys. Yeah, for sure. And I think, I feel like I've detected and, I would be, um, you know, I never want to assume that my perception of what's going on in modern music is just because I'm becoming an old fuddy-duddy and out of touch. Um, But there has been a certain distinctive feeling I've, I've picked up on from this this current sort of generation of bands or maybe maybe i I'm, I'm due for an update but it felt like sort of between the years of maybe 2007 to 2017 that there was um an almost an effort to be put forth to show about like how little you care how little you were moved right. how little you uh, a band would want to say like yeah we're gonna you know make something of this as if it was um pretentious or dishonest or inauthentic or some way. Um, but in, in a way, sort of a cold and removed attitude from bands, um, that, that to me has felt very alien when uh, like I, I can't call to mind, uh, any number of bands where I felt like, Oh yeah, this is like a, like the band really, you see them reaching out, even Marilyn Manson in his sort of prime, Mm -hmm. you could see where there was like a very direct, I think maybe even like Slipknot potentially, and certainly Lady Gaga. And, you know, when an artist develops that sort of familial call to their fans, whether it's, you know, you calling them little monsters or maggots as Slipknot did or whatever, or, you know, fish heads or whatever, anything like that. And the dolls, we had our brigaders and things like that. That's nothing to be embarrassed about or shy away from. And I would want to encourage bands these days to keep on that. There's a huge, what appears to be a a global movement of inclusiveness now. And let's not as musicians in bands negate that aspect and very important facet of community building amongst, you know, uh, the music community out there now and things can feel maybe more diluted with, you know, everything available all the time on your digital media and Spotify and everything like that. But there is something to be said for really focusing in on defining and cultivating your audience and your fan base. And right. And you don't want to, um, aim so high that you look right past the people and resources in your immediate surroundings. Hey, this is Chris Swinney, formerly of the Ataris and currently host of That One Time on Tour, part of the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. Have you ever wondered what it's really like on the road? The highs can be euphoric, but the lows can be crushing. Join me every week as I chat with industry pros about what it's like living out their wildest dream and in some cases, their worst nightmare. Past guests of the show include members of NoFX, Pennywise, Bad Religion, and more. Listen and subscribe at SoundTalentMedia.com. That's all you have, your fans. You know, that's your lifeblood. That's... That's it, yeah. you know? So if you don't connect with them, then then you don't have anything. Yeah, for sure. And word of mouth or word of chat room or word of 
et cetera, can be more effective at times, especially in the early stages than word of TV, word of blog, word of whatever. And so much of what's going on right now as a cultural message is you are valid by your high social media numbers. That feels like a refrain just that's been compounded year after year into the minds. And I see it happening with people around me in my immediate circles um, struggling to say like, I have music that I want to do and a message that I want to spread, but because my social media numbers are low, am I off base? Should I second guess what I'm doing? Should I be doing something differently so that I'm considered cool or fit into this? To me, what seems like an insane wave of conformity right now. Visually, I can't recall a time when I've seen a trend where everyone has struggled so desperately to look and sound like everyone else from the press photos that I'm seeing to certain images. And yes, obviously there's diversity in certain ways yet. It's, it seems to me a a really strong indicator that there's a tight grip on what we deem is an otherwise open and um, an an industry right now where anyone can so-called make it if you only have the laptop and the will to investigate how to build. Yet, I feel like there's a lot of standards at play that if you don't play by the rules, you don't get the attention. Mm -hmm. You have to have this look, this production style, you know, this type of voice. Whereas artists years ago, sure, there was always like some of this and sort of, you know, imitations going on. Yet what made an artist stand out was their willingness to show their, their, real, their true colors and have some individuality going. And I, I would not want to see bands lose that because the focus becomes on just getting the approval of the blogs and the Spotify playlists and things like that too. We will crush our own diversity and the sort of the, the general flora and fauna that make an interesting music scene if all you're doing is playing by a very rigid state of rules. That to me is almost like just as bad as playing by, you know, the quote unquote corporate rock stereotypes of the 80s and 90s that a lot of underground artists fought by. You know, if you don't look like this, you don't get the play. Well, don't lose yourself in all of that too. And remember that it takes time. And again, going back to what you said about those immediate fans around you, do not undervalue the the interest that you have and don't be afraid to grow that and realize that there are more people like that out there. Yeah. So I'm, I'm so glad you hit on that because, you know, I, I meet musicians all over the world at conferences or musicians at colleges. And again, you know, they'll say, how do I get a manager? Mm -hmm. And that's a really hard thing to get because um, management, it's, it's a very intimate relationship. So managers can only take on certain people. And I think a lot of times people have the image in their brain of kind of like the old guy on the 50th floor or whatever. And you know, even if you get the attention of, of kind of that person you have in mind, like they might have a million artists, they could have a family, they could have so much going on. Like, even if they love your music, you know, they might not have the time. And so I really encourage artists again, to look around them because you guys took a chance on me and that actually benefited both of us, Absolutely. you know, like, and don't get me wrong, like fancy people came in and, and that was awesome. And that helped you guys. And I learned from that, but you know, I had the time and the energy and the passion to work my butt off. Yes. And I would way rather have, you know, a kid studying music business who's passionate than, you know, someone older that you might think is fancy that has zero time. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Nothing will, I think, earn you more forward motion than the 
the attention to detail from somebody who's got the knowledge and passion to, to get there first. It can sometimes work against you if you take on friends that are willing to help but don't have the experience. Oftentimes, they can cost you time or make mistakes um, that would not otherwise be made by somebody a little bit more knowledgeable in those areas. So there is a screening process that you need to go through. And with this is the key phrase, proper delegation of labor. Using the right resources and the right people at that correct time for when you need them. Oftentimes, because there are so many things to juggle, it's tempting to go, oh, well, you know, Sam can do this and Sally can do that or et cetera. But you want to make sure that each of those people you're going to give those jobs to are really able to independently function with those tasks outside of you or that you give them the proper instruction and training first. That will ensure that you're not losing time or blowing connections to because when you're sending out uh, emails to people who are inundated with independent artists hitting them up, you want to make sure you nail it right the first time. So give yourself that due time to learn those skills and allocate those tasks appropriately. I'm like dramatically head nodding yes to all of that. Uh, you know, so again, when I introduced myself to Amanda, I was a fan, but I also presented myself in a professional manner. I explained I was studying music business and, and X, Y, and Z. And, and that balance is really important because as the band and the artist gets bigger, if you have someone that's just a friend or a fanager, um, they can almost be like too obsessed with you. Yeah. Does that make sense? And, and that's actually not good for your career. There right. has to be some sort of balance. Yeah, that's true. You want to make sure that the people invested in your career keep those boundaries because um, you want them to be passionate, but not um, distracted. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So when I showed up at the Cloud Club at Amanda's house um, for the first day, I, I didn't know what to expect. And something I really stress to interns is on one hand, you know, prepare as much as you can, you know, uh, go to every page on the company's website, uh, follow them on social media, maybe even follow key people that work there. In a band's case, definitely, especially nowadays, I, I sound so old, um, where you can listen to a band's entire catalog. Yeah. Don't show up and like be clueless about the music. So prepare on that stuff. And you guys had one album, so that, that wasn't <laughs> too hard. Um, but at the same time, be a blank slate as far as the tasks you're going to be given, because you just, you never know. And chances are you're not going to be, you know, given a huge marketing project or something on day one. So when I walked in the cloud club, the first thing Amanda needed help with was, as you know, better than anyone, she has an extremely aggressive keyboard style of play. And you guys didn't really have a team around you yet. You know, like I maybe say, both on the piano and on the keyboard. Yeah, so that's, yeah, exactly. So like maybe you had Walter with legal and Wes at JSR doing merch, but you didn't have a manager. You didn't have a booking agent. You didn't have a publicist. You didn't have a, you basically like didn't have anyone except for those two people. So you and Amanda were booking the band, doing the press, responding to fans, doing the email list in those very early days. And so because of that, this sounds like a low number to me now, but I think Amanda was sending about 100 emails today, a day. Mm -hmm. And so she developed um, tendonitis and, or some tension in her, her forearms. So the first thing she asked me to do for the band was to take dictation. And most students are probably not going to college to take dictation. But I said yes, and I did it with joy. And in hindsight, there's no better way to get inside your boss's head, a band's head, a business's head 
than to take dictation. Sure. So it's like you can look at these tasks and be like, oh, this sucks. This isn't why I got into the music industry. Or you can embrace it and figure out what you're learning. Yes, brilliantly said. And so much of what can help you along your path is the lens through which you view each stage of growth. And I actually tell drum students that when they say like, how do I practice all my you know, drumming rudiments and the boring mechanical exercises to keep it fresh so I don't just feel like I'm getting you know, like zoned out. And so there's exercises and focus points for that. And you just mentioned a very key one too, which is I'm learning the tone, the voice in which I'm writing these emails, what to say, what not to say, the pace at which you uh, are, developing communication with the band uh, is reaching out to, uh, like you said, what, what's going on in your boss's head and gaining an understanding of the real, the underlying direction the band is going in, their goals and ambitions, their strengths and weaknesses, and all the things that you can build on in that relationship and learn from. So keeping your mind open and not just focused on what am I getting out of this, but what can I really learn and what's the bigger picture that I'm a part of? I love what you just said. What am I getting out of this? I know it doesn't seem like you're getting anything out of it at the time, but you totally are. Absolutely. And that's something I really stress to our interns. I stress it in interning 101 is I guarantee you what you're doing plugs into the bigger picture. Think about how it does. If you're really stuck, ask. Right. Um, but yeah, that, that's just crucial. Agreed. That also is one of the pitfalls about the social media cultural yeah. overtake as well is that people get very focused on short-term immediate gratification totally. and you need to in professional situations like this and personal because people often get into music for very personal reasons sure. that what you're a part of is a small piece of a much bigger picture and the things that might be gratifying ultimately might not be things that come in the short term or in the day-to-day -day tasks, but in the overall trajectory. And you have to be ultimately very honest with yourself, people out there, about what does the quality of your time doing the things you're doing? What does it mean to you? Where do you really want to go? And I would stress this to everyone starting out, musicians, interns, everyone available. Think about the things in life that really make you happy, the direction that you want to go in, and as best as you can, write it down. Articulate it on paper. Think about it. Sit with it. Add to that list. Subtract from that list. The more you can refine the vision for where you want to go, feel settled about that and then have the courage to put yourself out there, not be afraid to take risks, not be afraid to make mistakes because mistakes oftentimes are the things you learn the most from and keep your eyes open for those opportunities. That inner sense of direction combined with your willingness to put yourself out there and take people up on those opportunities as Emily did with Dresden Dolls will actually beget you the most fulfilling types of tasks and gratification and things in the long run. And that's, that's really the whole name of the game. Otherwise you get sidetracked into going like, well, I don't know, this job pays a lot, but I'm not happy. Well, mm -hmm. that's not going to do you very good down the road. If you have a ton of money, but you're like, hate where you live, you yeah. hate where you work, your job tapes up all your time. And sure you're sitting on like however many hundred thousand dollars in the bank, but you've got 72 hours each week of work to do and no time to spend that money. And you're basically unhappy. You want to find the balance in life of things that make you happy and things that you're good at. And that sometimes can be a difficult thing too. Sometimes you might have ambitions or feel like, yeah, but I want to be famous. Or I want to be this, or you want some kind of 
glory in life, but you actually might have a certain strength in a different area. It takes some time to reconcile that to say, where can I get a place in life that I'm happy, but I'm also really playing to my strengths too. And I can make the most of my capacity and, and be engaged in a realm that is satisfying on a personal level, on a work level, on a relationship level. And you can do a lot of that calculating work by asking yourself those questions and writing that stuff down really sort of that's the first stage of manifesting mm -hmm. your your inner desires and your dreams is getting it on paper sharing it talking to people about it and then doing that research because as we all know things are not always what they seem right off sometimes you have to investigate a bit deeper to gain a clearer understanding of maybe a particular staff involved at a company where you're working or a particular uh, facet of the thing that you're curious about exploring. Give yourself that time. Enjoy it. Have fun. Take recommendations. Talk to people about it. The best thing you can do is engage with it rather than just kind of um, <laughs> glean what you can from Instagram and hope for the best. Seriously. You know what I mean? Like you want to make sure that you really get the human real world picture and not just the sort of sugar-coated uh, version that you might be presented with by somebody trying to sell you something, which we often get on social media. So take up the reins and put yourself out there. I love it. And by writing your goals down, whether you're a musician, industry person, whatever you want to do, that's going to also help you figure out how to achieve those goals and how the people around you can support those goals. Because you're right. If it's like, well, I just want to be famous. It's like, well, what does that even mean? Right. Exactly. So um, I just want to touch on social media real quick because, you know, again, something that the Dresden Dolls did so well early on was building up that email list. Mm -hmm. And again, this was 2003, 2004. You know, now I speak on panels all over the world about email lists and direct to fan, but nobody was telling you guys to do that. And I think Amanda would be okay with me saying, you know, I remember her saying, um, well, what if... What if you go away? Maybe you guys had an agent by then. What if the fancy booking agent goes away? What if the, what if all these fancy people go away? This is our only way to connect with the audience and inform them of our shows and our music and, and what we're doing. And, and so just a reminder on like the dopamine hits of social media, like not that social media isn't important. Um, we've all developed strong presence, you know, strong profiles on social media. I, I know I've done so by just being positive and informing and educating, but if you had built your uh, social media presence on Friendster and MySpace, where are you now? So just a Precisely. reminder that you don't own those platforms. And it's interesting because I've said that so many times, probably over the past five years, and it would sound insane to people like Facebook's ever going to go away. And I'm not saying it's going away, but look, I mean, Mark Zuckerberg is testifying in front of Congress this month. Like, yes. it's no joke. So yes. you guys just did such an amazing job with your email list from day one. And I, I would guess there's probably 75,000 names at least on that. Yeah, I believe so. And yeah, you're absolutely right. Essentially, Amanda, I think, started her initial email list for the house parties. And that transitioned into what would become like, let's take instead of just friends of ours from around the neighborhood who want, who want to come to a house party, let's make sure to mm -hmm. get an email list going for the Dresden Dolls, get everyone signed up. And then worst case, certain resources go away. You still have the main arm out into the public. 
that connects you directly to your your fan base. Exactly. And, you know, you're so right about word of mouth. I remember as the band got bigger and I'm sure High Road, your booking agency was on board for this. In fact, I know they were. You know, you, you guys had done great. Um, in Boston, New York, on the East Coast. We'd gone down to South by by then. But by the time High Road came on, I remember they booked a West Coast tour. Yeah. And I believed in you more, not more than anyone, but obviously I believed in you so much. But I remember thinking, who's going to come in San Diego? And the Casbah was sold out. Yeah. And I was doing merch. And I would ask, how do you know about the band? Oh, my friend from Vermont sent me a CD. Uh, someone else said, my friend in college, you know, I would me about them. And it was it was very genuine. Yes. And I would love to jump in there. That is one of the most, for me, kind of mystifying and terrifying ways, too, is because these days it's much less about, it seems to be, or at least that's what I'm being told in a lot of the articles and messages and things that, because I, you know, I know how I find out about certain music, whether it's seeing different bands or looking at, but now you're being told more and more, Oh, I heard you guys on a playlist, not my friend mailed me a CD. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Those were the days when my friend mailed me a CD, (laughs) but these days, um, again too, but I think it's important to not be dissuaded by that. And in fact, find ways that you can cultivate. People are very frequently, rightly so pointing to chance the rapper for doing things right when it comes to being an independent artist, growing those kinds of, um, connections with your fans and working outside of industry norms and things like that. And I think we all have to take some inspiration from that. Say, how can I find my unique way of what appeals to people and build on that in the ways that they want to share it with each other too. And to remember to have some patience with that. And again, use the resources, but don't feel entirely governed by the unshakable mountains of social media. There's more than one game in town and there's more than one, you know, way to, you know, fill in your and it's built to be addictive right and and like you're an artist so you also need to be creating art um i used to tell i i've said on panels you know artists could maybe block off like an hour a day for Mm -hmm. their social media time but it just depends on what works you know zoe keating told me once like she'll go like you know she'll have a social media week and then she'll hole up in the studio for two weeks and not deal with any of that you know so whatever works for you but i think what zoe and i are both saying is um, don't get too sucked into the social media part because that's not what you're actually there to do. Yeah, exactly. And and again, too, you want to make sure that what you're generating in terms of content and then the people who are um, around you as your team and the way you're distributing that content are done in a really well-prepared way, something that you can really believe in, too. There's something to be said, like, what is it that attracts people or attracted people to Cardi B in the beginning? Right. Someone who's just, like, very real, very, you know, sort of, like, no filter. I'm just saying what's on my mind. It's very spontaneous. And then yet there's also the element, to that as a band and an artist, too, there's something to be said for people, like, loving the kind of behind-the-scenes casualness. But then you want to make sure the content itself doesn't degrade to the point where you're going like, oh, yeah, like I'm not really working very hard on what I'm doing because it, all that matters is I'm just like putting out anything. Exactly. And that you because I need people to get me likes oh. and I need my page to get more fans and I need to blah, blah, blah. You want to make sure that your craft is developing, too, because that will have its own negative impact on culture, too. You'll find uh, less and less people that, that take pride in the artistry of what they're doing. Mm-hmm in favor of the just recognition or distribution or numbers, which are all manipulated and bought to a large degree this day anyway. That, if anything, I would think would shake the faith 
of the music community or let alone people who are using social media to advertise their work. The fact that you can basically buy likes, buy followers and manipulate, depending on how big your budget is, the apparent um, size of your fans community. And you really do need to focus on the real humans out there too, who will come and be faces at those shows, tell the friends, actually mail them a tape or a whatever, <laughs> you know, so to speak. And, um, and, and, and not get too sidetracked by just like, again, the instant gratification. Absolutely. So when I was interning for you guys in college, I did everything that was asked of me. I did it to the best of my ability. I did it with joy. That could have been anything from your beautiful merch packages that you guys used to hand put together and, and we'd ship out to the fans to, of course, sit, you know, selling your merch at shows. I mean, I, I it's insane to me now because clubs became my second home as a tour manager, but I used to be intimidated by, you know, venues and, and things like that. So I just got over that fear. If someone asks me to even wrap a cable or whatever, you just do it. And, um, you know, I, I talked to a, a young woman a few years ago at this point who wanted to be a tour manager. And she said, oh, I'll just suck it up and do merch. And I was like, suck it up. What like, I, was, I know I was so horrified <laughs> because you know, I mean, first, if you really do want to be a tour manager, if you don't understand um, the ins and outs of merch, of ordering, of projections, of, you know, house cuts, um, getting the email, I mean, that's, you need to know that if you're going to be that person's boss. And then and now, that is very often the direct connection you know, to the band, you know, so in those early days, if people needed to know tour dates or whatever, and maybe they couldn't find it online because it's like 2004, I was that along with all three of us, because you guys were so great about signing after every show was, you know, signing up for the email list. And, and that still is a huge tool for you guys today. So helped out with everything, did it with joy, um, knew I wanted to tour manage and you guys were going on your first, um, I've got air quotes here, national tour. And I say it like that because um, two of the venues on there were Big Bill's Barbecue in Carbondale, Illinois, and Geno's Sports Bar in Boone, North Carolina. Uh, but you were also playing South by Southwest. Yes. And by the way, Geno's Sports Bar and Big Bill's were two of the best shows on that tour. Like in my head, you know, going into it, I was like, what is this? They were both booked by college kids who couldn't do shows on campus. And so they were at these random places. And... Um, it was totally packed. I have great. I, I don't. I actually don't. It's interesting that I singled those two places out in advance because they're the only two I think I remember from that tour besides South by. Yeah, sure. They were so memorable, and right. I remember the Big Bill's barbecue guy said, um, "If you guys came back, you would make Amanda and I special vegetarian dinners." <laughs> That's amazing. Yes. So anyway, so you guys were going on the, your first national tour, self booked. Yes. Um, obviously, South by Southwest was the big anchor on it, and I was on co op that semester, which was basically interning. So I was. Was very nervous, even though I knew you guys a little bit better. And I was um, over at Amanda's house and I said, uh, you know, I would love, I've always wanted to tour manage. I don't know what I'm doing, but I could at least sell your merch if you're interested in, in me tour managing. And um, it was just Amanda that day. And she was very serious. She was like, this is a band decision. I have to talk to Brian. <laughs> And like a week went yes. by and I'm telling my friends, like, I might be going to South by, I don't know what's going on. And so again, I was nervous. I didn't hear anything for like a week. And I was at Amanda's house and I said, hey, did you get a chance to talk to Brian about me tour managing? And you were in the other room. 
And Amanda's like, oh, I totally forgot. Hey, Brian, can Emily be our tour manager? And you're like, yeah, that's cool. <laughs> you know, needed all week build up just to get to that point. That's good. It was just a test really to make sure you had the nerves to withstand. I love it. But, you know, I highlight that for a few reasons, like whether it was asking, you know, if I could help you guys with anything or asking to be your tour manager, like, I mean, I've always been a confident, outgoing person, but I still have that fear, Sure. you know? So I created my dream internships and careers by asking. Absolutely. And then raising Following your, through. Exactly. All that, for sure. And stepping up to the challenge. Hey, Emily White here. If you can't tell, Brian Viglione and I have known each other a very long time and have a lot of things to say. So we've cut this interview into two parts. That's a wrap for today's episode. Tune in next time as Brian and I delve into his experiences playing in Nine Inch Nails, in The Violent Femmes, and networking both as a music industry person and a musician. See you then. This is the Jabberjaw Podcast Network.